0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So that hymn that we read this morning, uh, that, that part of that, uh, the text that was read where, where Mary is singing a song that's traditionally called the Magnificat or, or the Song of Mary. I've probably read it, may, many of you might have this experience, read it hundreds of times. Um, And this year, for me at least, it struck a little bit differently. Uh, It struck me that way because we've been talking about suffering and this posture of expectation and anticipation in preparation for Advent. And then last week, Cole kind of talked about um, this transition that's starting to happen for us as we approach the birth, the celebration of the birth of Christ, where we're starting to anticipate not only the person, but the kingdom that the person ushers in. And really, while we're in a posture of reckoning with our suffering and the suffering of the world around us, we're starting to feel this transition as we approach the day of Christmas that we start to celebrate instead of only reflecting on sin and the necessity of Christ's coming. We start to celebrate why he came. And as Jesus is born, really, what's important is his kingdom is also born in a lot of ways. We see the beginning of his kingdom coming to earth right here with Mary. And so... um, what strikes me about Mary's song is that it really runs, I think, counter to a lot of, a lot of what we might think regarding this woman, right? We, we, we know she's a teenager. She's probably around 15 years old. Um, but at least in the cultural kind of narration of the birth narrative, we, we get images of Mary kind of riding in on a donkey and being turned away at the end and just kind of timid, maybe um, not, not a lot of talking or maybe not a lot of confidence even. There's even this, this hokey pop 90s Christian song, really uh, Christmas song called Mary, Did You Know? Um, and we bring this up regularly. But the song is all about how wonderful and magnificent Jesus is, which is all true, and how he's coming to earth with power and justice. All of that part of the song is fine. But the truths of Jesus are communicated to a question to Mary, where the, the, the song kind of goes, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that the infant Jesus would do these things? Did you know that he would bring about a kingdom like this? Did you know that he came to save sinners, that you were touching the face of God? Um, and maybe I admit it's a little exhausting to like analyze a pop Christian song in this way, but bear with me. Um, like, Mary, did you know uh, that question could have been answered if, if the author of that song simply read Luke 1 once? Like the the angel knew, Mary knew, her husband Joseph knew, her relative Elizabeth knew, the infant in utero knew, like everybody around Mary knows. Um, And I'm guessing if I were to write more into Luke or at least read more into the narrative that it was probably nine months of a pregnancy where everybody was constantly talking about Mary, you're a virgin. Mary, you were told by an angel that you would give birth to the Messiah. Like there was probably not a time where they forgot this. Not only did they know, it was ever present in the reality of her being pregnant. I'm pregnant. I know. Um, and yeah, it's this conversation around this miracle, right? She's a virgin. She's 15 or so years old. Um, so it would just be odd to assume that she didn't know. It would be odd to assume that she's this foolish teenager, bewildered and confused about what's going on. And in fact, as we read the Magnificat and the verses preceding it that give us kind of the narrative around what's happening when this song comes forth, um, we realize that she, she certainly knew. In fact, she knew a lot about what was going on. Um, let's read again in verse 39. It says this, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. Uh, That's not Texas. That's into a town in Judah, not Austin. Um, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth, her relative, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in Elizabeth leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Remember, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks this idea of this person, John the Baptist, who is sent by God to prepare the way, to get Israel ready for the Messiah, reminding them of their need for a Savior. And so John is imploring the people, like, prepare your hearts, get ready, the Savior is coming, um, prepare him room, right? And so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, who is pregnant with this person. So John is going to be the son of Elizabeth. Um, and really, she, Mary goes to Elizabeth because their family has had this really miraculous couple of months, right? Angels have appeared to both of them now. When the angel appears to Mary, the the angel says to Mary, you will conceive a child, and that child will will be the Son of God. And the angel also says, and also remember, your relative Elizabeth, who is barren, who has never been allowed to have children, or never been able to have children, rather, she has conceived. She's pregnant now. So Mary hears this message, and her thought is kind of, I need to go to Elizabeth. Because Elizabeth can kind of understand what's going on with me, and I want to understand what's going on with her. We've had these miraculous experiences, and I want to go to my relative. So she goes, and then we get this narrative that when Elizabeth sees Mary, Elizabeth's child is leaping in the womb. This is John the Baptist in utero, leaping in the womb in worship and reverence for the Son of God's proximity, right? Like Jesus is in the room with John, and John begins to worship. That gives us a hint at the order of operations when it comes to the Lord. Jesus, in fact, comes to John well before John is preparing a way for Jesus. Elizabeth herself is bewildered. She was barren, and now she's pregnant. Her son will be John. She is told the proclaimer of the arrival of the Messiah. He leaps for joy in the presence of Christ, and Elizabeth cries out in worship, worship. She exclaims that Mary is blessed, and how blessed Elizabeth is that Mary and the Lord would even be in the same room as her. She praises Mary's faithfulness because she says Mary listened to the word of God and believed she was confident in what the Lord had told her, and so Elizabeth marvels at uh, Mary's faithfulness. I mean, these are faithful women. These are faithful women. Elizabeth's husband, we're told in the the beginning of chapter 1, Uh, he is made mute by God because he does not believe what the angel says. So due to his disbelief, he is made mute. But Elizabeth here is not only participating in God's plan for redemption, she's worshiping audibly as she just kind of basks in the presence of God. She explodes in worship, we are told. It's a beautiful and powerful moment, and it really informs our reaction to being in God's presence. What should we do when we gather here on Sunday morning? Because we're told by Scripture, where two or more gather, there is the Holy Spirit of God. There is God. So what do we do? We are called to worship. We worship. And then, out of Elizabeth's worship, we we get what flows from Mary as a result. It's the Magnificat, and in it, we hear what Mary believes about the child within her. We hear what Mary believes he has come to do. We get what Mary believes about the type of kingdom Christ will come to bring. And so, a few notes about the Magnificat. Um, Some of you know famous theologian, German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was murdered by the Nazis. Um, He calls this hymn, the Magnificat, the most passionate, the wildest, and one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Uh, At different periods in history, the Magnificat, as we will read it, was banned from being sung in India, um, in Argentina, and in Guatemala. It was illegal to sing it or recite it. It was out of fear that it would incite a revolution. The Magnificat is read aloud, in some cases daily, by Anglicans, Lutherans, Eastern Orthodox Church, Episcopalians, and Roman Catholics. And so with all that in mind, I am going to read the Magnificat, And I want to invite you to read it with me out loud. So starting here in verse 46, hear the word of the Lord spoken through Mary. It says this, "'My soul magnifies the Lord, "'and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. "'For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. "'For behold, from now on, "'all generations will call me blessed. "'For he who is mighty has done great things for me, "'and holy is his name.'" And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He is filled with hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent him. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. You just participated in a revolutionary act in some ways, in some real ways, I think. So Mary writes this and sings this to Elizabeth, we are told. And then we're told, Mary remains with Elizabeth about three months, and then she goes home. I want to Briefly, kind of while we, if we can leave the Magnificat up there, uh, real quick, Aaron. I want to briefly kind of walk through what this is saying, Um, so you can kind of follow along as I go. But uh, it starts with this is the posture. This is what this is what Mary believes about the infant within her. This is what Mary believes about God and what He is doing through this birth. Um, She starts by worshiping. She says, "My soul exists as ours to magnify the Lord." Mary's soul exists to make the Lord's name great. So we don't worship Mary. We, Mary has told us here, I exist to magnify the Lord. Her entire being is rejoicing in God, her Savior. She's led to a place of worship. Why? We're told he looked at her state. She is poor, she is young, and yet she has been chosen as God's servant. Why is she chosen? Because of her faith and righteousness. The Lord found favor with her. So God chose Mary. That's why she's chosen, because she is chosen. So it is appropriate for us to marvel at Mary, to call her blessed, to learn from her, because she has been chosen by God for the redemption of all things through Christ. So we, with all generations, can call and look on Mary as blessed. In verse 49, He who is mighty has done it and done great for Mary and for us. The great thing is the incarnation and the coming salvation that that Christ will bring, the redemption of a sinful man. His name is holy. It's set apart. His mercy finds those who have reverence for his name. All who fear, we are told, will be given strength. God is stretching out his arm in power, verse 51, to do what? To redeem the world. Then we're told the proud will be scattered and humble, the lowly will be uplifted and exalted, which is true of the earthly lowly, the earthly lowly, the poor in spirit who come to Christ will be exalted, will be raised up. It's also true of Christ within her who is made lowly in his crucifixion and then exalted to the throne of his kingdom, even where he sits today. Verse 53, those who are hungry and thirsty will be satisfied. Very specifically, those who are physically hungry will see a day where they are filled and satisfied by Christ himself and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we're told in the Sermon on the Mount, will be satisfied. And the rich, we're told, will be sent away. Those who love the world more than they love Christ will be sent away. He will help his people remember His mercy, So he reminds Israel of his promises uh, through John and through Jesus. God reminds his people. He reminds his church of his mercy and grace through the word of God, through communion and baptism and the preaching of the word and worship and community. And finally, he has spoken to Abraham and his children, who we are reminded or should be reminded, Abraham's children are comprised of all who come to faith in Christ. We, the church, are the children of Abraham to whom he has spoken in his word now and forevermore. The woman who sings these words is not a scared teenager. She's not a doubting, cowering woman. She's confident in the mission. She's confident in the promises of proclamation of victory. She's confident in the salvation coming to her and for the world. She's confident in the revolution that Christ will bring when he overthrows death And sin, it's a revolution of justice and mercy, we're told. It's an equalizing revolution. It's an event where the kingdom will spread, and as it spreads, the worldly order will be turned upside down its path. Through Christ, those downtrodden are exalted. Those downtrodden with sin and failure and suffering and sadness are exalted to a banquet table of the king. Through faith in his life and death and resurrection, we have access to this table and this kingdom. This is the truth of what Mary sings. We say this statement often, but think back to the garden. We, we have to think back to the garden because it's there that we discover not only why all of this is necessary, but also we kind of discover in that beginning, we discover what the end is. Right, Thinking back to the Garden of Eden, there's a woman named Eve, and through her deception, Adam falls. So Paul in 1 Timothy writes, Eve was deceived, but Adam chose to sin. And so through the deception of this woman, Eve, the first Adam falls, and it's he who is our figurehead as humans. Adam is our father in a very real way, which means his sin is our sin. And yet here, God chooses to replay this story differently. Through another woman, a second Adam is born. Mary isn't deceived. She knows exactly what this Adam has come to do. She knows exactly the type of kingdom he has come to restore. She has confidence in the truth of God. She is not deceived. She knows he has come to undo the effects of Adam. Through the first Eve, the first Adam falls, which leads to our fall, but through this second Eve, Mary, the second Adam Christ, or should I say the better, truer Adam Christ, will be victorious in the undoing of the fall and the establishing of a kingdom that should have been. This is Christmas. It's not just cookies and presents, it's it's revolution, it's kingdom victory, it's Eve's redemption, it's... It's the return of all that was done bad. It's the establishment of the faithful woman and her conquering seed, as the hymn tells us, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Genesis 3, is this is what this is saying. Genesis 3 says that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Christ is the seed, the woman is Mary, and Satan is dealt a death blow on the cross as the serpent's head is trampled. The conquering seed has arrived. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why John, as an infant in the womb, rejoices. That's why Elizabeth cries out in praise. And that's why Mary shouts out the Magnificat. Christ is here. I can feel him. As we wrap up and celebrate all of this truth, really in these final six days before Christmas, there's this additional significance of this pregnant version. Um, As Cole was talking about last week, the arrival of the kingdom comes with this arrival of these new miracles, right? The blind are given sight. The lame are beginning to walk. The dead are raised to new life. And there are these real literal experiences of the miracles of the kingdom. But the kingdom is one of spiritual experience most prominently, right? Those blind to our sin, we are given sight. Those spiritually dead are raised to walk in newness of life. But the first miracle is the miraculous way that the kingdom arrives. A virgin conceives. A virgin conceives. We're told this in Luke 25. Mary asks with expectation the angel, How will I have a child? I am a virgin. And the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is a prophecy being fulfilled from Isaiah 7, verse 14, which says this, 600 years before this birth, Isaiah writes, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This will be a sign that the Lord will give you, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mary can't be pregnant, is what she tells the angel. I'm a virgin. A necessary aspect of conceiving a child is not being a virgin. And yet... The Holy Spirit comes upon her, and through the power of God, she conceives the Messiah. Through this miracle, the kingdom of God, in in a real tangible, physical way, comes to earth. From there, the spreading of the gospel to the nations begins, including to America, including to Houston, including right now, up to 2021. And in a real way, we, the church, we are like Mary, We are the virgin. We cannot conceive the kingdom on our own. We cannot produce the type of kingdom that Christ is producing. Individually, we know we can't produce the type of good fruit on our own that we need to change the world. But God uses us who are incapable of anything. His Holy Spirit comes upon us. God Himself dwells within us just like He dwelt within Mary. And from there, we can conceive good works. We can actually be changed in our hearts and we can produce love and mercy and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and goodness and love. We are able through the Spirit to be like Mary, to worship and proclaim His goodness, His power, and His justice And like Mary, we are invited to participate in the story of redemption as through us, the church, the kingdom of God, is born into the world. We bring the kingdom of God to bear into the world. Again, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to overshadow us, the church. We need the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous, to take dead men and dead women and give us life from within. God himself within us, Emmanuel, as the prophecy says. Right, within Mary, there is this tangible presence that changes things. She's pregnant. It's, it's tangible. It's physical. And within the church, there is this the Holy Spirit, a tangible presence of God that changes things. For Mary, it's not just theoretical anymore, right? It's not just some far-off idea of some future Savior. She can feel the heartbeat of the child within her. and She responds with songs of praise and action. And when we come to faith, it's not just theoretical anymore. The Spirit of God is within you, which means your heart will beat with the things that make God's heart beat. Our heart beats with the yearnings of God, yearnings for restoration and renewal and the end of suffering and for God's kingdom to come to bear. That's what our heart beats with. Hope becomes real. The idea of a kingdom is no longer theoretical. It's got a heartbeat. This is the power of Christmas. And as we feast in remembrance of the real body and real blood that formed an infant in the womb, we feast remembering a real heart pumping real blood, a heart of flesh pumping real blood. And we remember that that body grew up into a man who was pierced, as we just sang, who was sacrificed for his people as the woman's seed conquered Satan's conquering sin and death on the cross. That's what we we come to the communion table to remember. At the same time, as we do, we hold this thing in tension, right? We, We remember the first advent and why he came and what his coming resulted in, namely his death, and also remember his resurrection. And we look forward to a time when the lowly, the poor, the hungry, we who hunger and thirst for righteousness, will recline at that table of the wedding feast where the church and Christ are eternally united, his final advent. Until then, we, who can't do anything on our own, are indwelt by Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us, and therefore we bring the the kingdom of God to bear on our neighbors through our love, through our sacrifice, and through our good works. We don't work to earn anything. We've earned it all empowered to do the work of God because he has chosen to make us alive again with his heartbeat inside us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to minister to us now. Would our heart beat for the things that you yearn for, Lord, for for righteousness in our lives, for good deeds of love and self-sacrifice, for purity, for Goodness and mercy, for forgiveness to be extended at our tables, for hospitality to be shown to our neighbors, for generosity to flow from among us. These are the yearnings of God. We can fabricate them in the world, but without your heart beating within us, they're dead. They're dead. But we know your heart beats. In flesh, in the womb of Mary, it didn't lead to her cowardice, it led to her confidence. She shouts the praises of revolution. Would the heart beating within us not lead to our own cowardice, Would it instead give us assurance that you have saved us, you have done it, you have taken what is dead and made it alive that a new heart beats within us, it's the heart of God. We might stumble and we might fall. We might fail. We can't beat ourselves up over that because you don't. We pick ourselves up knowing that you are the one who picks us up. Without, it, without you, we can't even muster getting onto our feet. But you lift us up. Call us son and daughter. And say, remember I came to earth. I lived for you. I died to take those failings. You are beloved, he says to us. Lord, would we remember that we are your children at your table? Would we feast on the bread and cup this morning? And would we feast well with family and friends this week, celebrating the goodness that you have brought by coming to earth? Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. And we trust you to give us a greater degree of the heartbeat of God as we We ask for it and yearn for it. In your name we pray, amen.